add a bit of funky music there to liven your day here on Fuzzy Logic. And in fact, it's a bit of a sad day because we are lamenting the recent death of that great scientist, that great physicist and science communicator, Stephen Hawking. And joining me in the studio, we have uh, Andrew Leach. Good morning, Andrew. How's it going? And uh, Harry... Sutton, who is a uh, researcher at the John Curtin School of of Medical Medical Research, Research, uh, looking at the immunology and malaria, and how can we help us overcome what is a really quite nasty disease. But we're going to kick off with a tribute to uh, Stephen Hawking. Yeah, so I, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware that Stephen Hawking passed away during the week, but a lot of people still not too sure the science he did. So he was a great communicator for science, but he was also really quite prolific when he was when he was researching. So I thought I'd quickly give a rundown on the kind of two main things that he, he really worked on. Um, I should say first up, uh, when he was studying his PhD in, in theoretical physics and mathematics, he was diagnosed with a really slow form of motor neuron disease. When he was first diagnosed, they thought it would only last two years, but as you can see, he kicked on really for another... Really nasty. In America, they call it Lou Gehrig's disease. Or ALS as well. Yeah. 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 So... Um, we could talk about the two things that he, he really worked with. And he, he really tried to tackle some big problems with cosmology and theoretical physics. So the first thing he tried to do was figure out what's at the centre of black holes. And he and another researcher, Roger Penrose, they, they showed that black holes are these really small, uh, really massive objects in space that are just really, really dense. So really, really, really dense that light can't even escape the gravity in a black hole. They figured out that in the middle, and the, the lowest point of a black hole, is a singularity, which is the most dense thing you can really have in the universe. And everything kind of gets crushed into it and just pushed and packed and packed down. And that was the, so the first researchers to really show that mathematically and, and how that would work. And that was a great thing that he did at the time. And the second thing that he really did was he kind of worked out what's at the edge of black holes. So it kind of merges a bit of Einstein's physics and a, a bit of um, a bit of quantum mechanics. And you might think that in a vacuum there's absolutely nothing, but it's it's not. There's not nothing in a vacuum. It's actually quite fizzy. Space time is constantly throwing up particles and antiparticles, and then they annihilate and go away again. And they're constantly popping in and out. So it's really quite a fuzzy, fizzy kind of yeah, space-time so there, area. There, there is no such thing as nothing. nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. There's, there's no nothing. So what he, they worked out is if at the edge of a black hole there's things popping into existence and popping out, then maybe at the very edge some things will fall into the black hole and some things will float away. So there's a small amount of particle, a small amount of radiation that emanates from the edge of a black hole outwards and... And so this thing slowly leaks and eventually... Yeah. Well, it's, but it's a really small effect, isn't it? Yeah, so it's a really small effect, but they can pick up the radiation coming out. And, of course, they named this radiation Hawking radiation after the physicists that found it. And they also found that because these particles are dropping into the black hole, many of them are antiparticles, so they slowly eat away at the black hole and it shrinks and shrinks down. But this is one of those instances where English doesn't really do physics justice. So so it takes a really long time, and it's it's eons and eons of time, but eventually the f- black hole gets small enough that it'll just explode. But really explode, like really, really explode. It'll explode with something like the force of one million 
nuclear bombs as it explodes out. Million or you mean many, many, million? Yeah, and depending on the on the black hole, but it's absolutely amazing. Um, so they're kind of the two major things that. Well, this is the layman's term. I'm sure there's a new, uh, an astrophysicist out there going, "There's more. There's so much more." And I apologise for my marine science <laughs> brain explaining this. He also was very influential in the development of Big Bang theory, the kind of main theory that we used to just well, describe the stars of the Who in the studio has read the uh, the theory? What's his book called? The, the brief, brief history, history of time. The, the brief history of time. Uh, Look, I'm on one of those biologists that started. Got about halfway through and went, uh, "Yeah." I'm oh, good. <laughs> well, well, the the follow-up question is, hands up, who understood it? Yeah. Oh, there are no hands. I'm um, looking out and our listener radio is all with the ears pressed to the speakers on their radio and, oh, there are no hands <laughs> with <laughs> out there. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the amazing things about what Stephen Hawking did is because when we all work, we probably write things down because it's hard to keep all the things in your head. Now, because of his motor neuron disease, Stephen Hawking didn't have that option. He had to work through by keeping his head appropriately and difficultly communicating it with the people around him. And he was still able to make these amazing discoveries. And that's why we kind of venerate him when we say, Good innings. It's, in, it's impressive, isn't it? It's yeah, impressive. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, the thing that I find really amazing about black holes is that uh, they just throw around terms like infinity. You know, <laughs> like here's, here's an infinity in you know in infinite mass and zero space or or whatever it is. I'm just like. Yeah, uh, the only other people I know who talk about infinities with such casual uh, is uh, economists. <laughs> yeah, in infinite growth. Yeah, <laughs> infinite growth. The numbers that astrophysicists deal with are only only really rivaled by economists and the, the numbers that they deal with. <laughs> so it's it is a sad loss, uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, now, a, another little sidetrack before we get into the main story. Uh, this one is uh, platypus milk. Now, Broderick and I, the other day, we were talking on Fuzzy Logic about uh, Australian animals on our coinage. And uh, the platypus, of course, is one of those. And we were speculating about what therapeutic benefits we might get out of the, the, the platypus. And I was thinking as I was making that comment to him of the, the, the venom, because I have a venomous spur on their rear leg. And, uh, but this one, there's a story in the Canberra Times about their milk. And uh, apparently it has really good uh, antibiotic properties, uh, milk. Uh, how does that strike you, Harry, the, the idea of milk having antibiotic properties? Well, it's not surprising because in most mammals, in particular humans, uh, milk is an effective way for the mother to pass on um, antibodies or part of their immune system to the child who doesn't have um, an effective immune system so yet and not fully developed. So milk is definitely one way that mammals have been they protect their young from disease. So they pass on, so that the, the, the adult has learned, inverted commas, the, what's the term? <laughs> Immune memory. It's not exactly like that because, of course, a, a child still needs to um, get vaccines, you know, still vaccinate children, but um, it passes on sort of chemicals or proteins from the mother that can protect the child for a time up until the child's immune system develops itself. Oh, okay. um, so the fact that other animals um, have antibiotic properties in their milk doesn't isn't necessarily surprising because um, you need to be able to protect... Children are always the oh, most right. vulnerable right. Um, to disease. So 
it doesn't make it makes sense that animals have evolved ways to make sure that their children are protected from infection. And the other thing the article says is that the milk is on the surface of the skin because they don't have nipples, so it has to be um, it has to last. Yeah. So what's interesting about um, platypus and echidnas is that they're, they're monotremes. So that's a type of mammal that lays eggs, and they still give milk to the young. That's the main mammal thing that you do. You give milk to your young. But they can't do it with a nipple. They have secrete the milk on their skin and then the, the young drinks it. But if it's being secreted on the skin, it's being exposed to the environment. Right, and so that can be more risk of infection. Yeah, so it can get a culture. So what platypus have is an amazing little antibiotic to make sure that the bacteria doesn't affect the milk before the young drinks it. You might sterilise it, you might put it in the microwave if you're reusing milk, but the, the mothers at home might do that. But Platypus, they just have an antibiotic in their milk to sterilise it anyway. And I, I like the, uh, the the language that they use. So the scientists call it the Goldilocks, uh, I think it's the Goldilocks protein because the protein has a particular twisted shape. The Shirley like, Temple protein. Shirley <laughs> Temple protein. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the correction. Shirley Temple, yes, the lovely twisted locks. But just just go back to the uh, the protection that are of what do you want to call it that the mother passes on to the offspring. Does it, the mother doesn't pass on or, or does it? the uh, any immune memory no so well not that i know of generally so part of a um, immune response is the production of these things called antibodies which uh, i work on a lot and i'll probably talk about later when we're talking about um, my research but antibodies are these y-shaped proteins that will stick to um pathogens or diseases uh, when they enter the body um, and one of the ways that uh, milk is protective is through mother's milk mothers pass on those antibodies, those antibodies to um, so that's, their babies. that's the fully loaded gun which the mother has prepared in, yes. in a sense but the child then has to learn well so the child's own immune system then has to develop has, has and to then uh, we generate its own immune memory well we we'll get right into all the details of how immunology works because we're going to kick off next after this break we'll have a, a quick song track i think and uh, but i want to learn all about how the immune system works because it's amazingly sophisticated and uh, and malaria and why is malaria such a difficult adverse adversary Adversity from an adversary. <laughs> I'm already cracking poetry here on Fuzzy Logic. Our guest today, Harry Sutton from the John Curtin School of Medical Research. And we're almost a, fug uh, a fuzzy regular now, Andrew. And uh, let's have a bit of wild thing here from the Trogs. And that was Wild Thing by the Trogs. Um, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on Community Radio, and with us today we have Harry Sutton from the John Curtin School of Medical Research talking about malaria. Firstly, Harry, what is malaria? Um, so malaria is a disease caused by a parasite. So I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't quite understand when... Um, malaria is sort of spoken about. A lot of people know about viruses and that bacteria can make you sick, but most people don't understand that malaria is a parasite, and that's one of the reasons why vaccinating against malaria is um, quite an issue, because parasites are generally more complex than viruses or um, uh, bacteria. But it's a it's an um, unicellular uh, parasite, so it's a protozoan, so it's uh, it's not a simple bacteria, it is a much more complicated organism than that. 
Um, and it's a disease that uh, is spread via, I think most people know, the um, mosquitoes, or in most cases the Anopheles mosquito, uh, and the mosquito passes it on by sucking up infected blood. Uh, the then parasite has a life cycle in the mosquito where it, uh, they go basically inside the mosquito. They, the parasite has sex so and breeds inside the mosquito, so it doesn't actually um, breed in that sense uh, inside the human. The mosquito will then bite someone uh, when they bite someone, it injects uh, what are known as sporozoites, so that's the sort of first human stage of the parasite, which is what I work on. Um, and sporozoites are sort of these little wormy type things that uh, dig their way through the skin, uh, into the blood, get into the bloodstream, and find their way to the liver. And once they get into the liver, they infect uh, a liver cell, uh, start to grow and divide inside the liver cell, where they'll burst out into the blood as now what's called a merozoite. Um, which are these sort of smaller round parasites. And these, uh, this stage of the life cycle then goes on to infect uh, your red blood cells. And this is the stage that makes you sick. So a parasite, the parasite will infect the red blood cell, uh, grow and divide inside the red blood cell, burst forth from the red blood cell, and go to go and infect more red blood cells. And it's that stage that is what causes well, the Well, let, let's get on to the effects on humans in a moment, but let's just complete the life cycle then. So a mosquito then comes along and is the it then sucks up some blood from an infected person. Yeah, and so what's the critical thing is here is part of... So for every uh, red blood cell that gets infected, there's a small proportion that instead of multiplying, dividing into more merozoites, the parasite will change into a sexual stage, so uh, which is called a gametocyte, and they'll either become male or female, um, and then uh, the mosquito will suck up these male or female um, parts of the parasite, and then these pa those gametocytes will have sex or breed, reproduce inside the mosquito. I'm, I'm just, uh, I've just learned something <laughs> amazing. The, the parasite has male and female. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So if they are male and female, but they're coming from the same original parasite, are they genetically dissimilar if they have kids again? Because So, I mean, it's likely if you're in an endemic region of malaria, you'll be infected and bitten by multiple parasites. So there'll uh, probably be male um, and female gametocytes from different parasite strains. So have... the, do, do we know how the breeding works? Um, people do. I'm not. I, that's you're not a parasitologist, the, yeah. Yeah, and it happens a lot in the uh, the mosquito stage of the parasite, which I don't really know that much about. But it's so I don't know if people know about. Like I think malaria is during most of its life cycle is a haploid uh, organism, where it, that just means they have one set of chromosomes. Um, but we're diploid. We have two. You have two. You know, you have an X and Y. Of, um, two of every type of chromosome. I think what happens, although this is going back to uh, undergrad uh, parasitology, um, is that when it could, the changing into a uh, um, sexual stage is when so the parasite goes from a haploid stage to a diploid. It develops two sets of chromosomes. So which it's, it can it's, then it's quite reproduce. a long and, and almost tortuous chain. So the, the, the parasite, the malaria parasite, needs a mammal f as for its life cycle. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, not, and so, not, so there are malaria um, species that infect birds, I think, as well. So it's not just a mammal disease, but um, we know it. A warm-blooded animal, yeah. a non-insect yeah. Yeah, uh, arthropod, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, there's multiple types of malaria. There's, I think, there, how many? So there's there's four big, well, main species of malaria. There's been a fifth one that people have now recognised can be transmitted. So it was found in monkeys, um, and there have been cases of monkey to human transmission, um, but they now found that it can be transmitted human to human, but it's quite rare. So that's Plasmodium nulzii. I'm pretty bad at pronouncing all of them. But the four main ones are Plasmodium malaria, Plasmodium ovulae, I think is the... Uh, and then the two really big ones are generally Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium falciparum. And Plasmodium falciparum is the one that causes around 90% of all the deaths. So it's the very lethal one, and it's found predominantly in Africa. Now, uh, I remember uh, at school uh, we had a friend. He was a surfy guy, blonde hair. Uh, I think his name was Greg, and he went off to Bali. And, uh, of course, Bali being a great place for surfers, but also not a good place for malaria. And he came back with a dose of malaria, and he died. Mm. And so we do have occasionally people dying in malaria, but do we otherwise... Well, what's the situation with malaria in Australia? Um, so malaria doesn't exist in Australia. We, we effectively eradicated it. I think it did exist for a period of time brought over by um, European colonisation, and also I think we brought over... The, I don't think the mosquito is native to Australia as well, so we brought that over. Um, but we don't get cases of human-to-human -human transmission anymore. So there will be cases of tourists or um, backpackers or travellers coming back from a malaria region who will get sick, um, but that doesn't happen that often. Well, what would, it, what would it take for us to get a reservoir of malaria in Australia? Um, so there's a lot of... Um, probably just need a lot of people infected coming into the country again uh, since the parasite doesn't exist um, in Australia anymore. In, in the wild. In yeah. the wild. I, yeah. think, I think we're fairly safe uh, from it. I haven't really... There's some talk again of because of the cha changing climate of um, the mosquitoes range is extended and so there's fears that some areas will be susceptible again but as far as I know I don't know of any real threat to Australia from um, malaria as a disease, unless you're an Australian backpacking in Southeast Asia. <laughs> yes, um, or, or a surfer. Uh, so you said earlier that Europeans also brought over malaria. Now, you don't hear about malaria being in Europe anymore. Well, why is it no longer in Europe or other... Again, so the, the developed world managed to, in, around the, in the 50s, had a very effective um, demalarialization program, basically. I think in so Italy, malaria... Uh, the word is actually Italian, which is mal aria, which means bad air. And it's because they used to think that the disease came around from breathing in toxic fumes from swamps and marshes. And they were almost there. Was, they, they were able to associate the fact that it's from mosquitoes that live in those. They weren't able to associate that, but they got the association of a marsh. But there was malaria. I mean, there was malaria in Europe, but it, it, it killed a pope. One of the popes died from malaria. A lot of... So there's stories of... Um, Roman emperors would have uh, villas off in the highlands so that which they would go on summer retreats to avoid getting sick in the summer when the malaria, um, when the mosquitoes would um, be more common. Uh, but I think Mussolini was quite famous for doing a lot of like um, malaria eradication programs where he cleared a lot of stagnant water and stuff. But in the 50s, uh, we invented DDT. Um, 
which is a really effective insecticide, um, and the drug chloroquine came into use, which was a very effective um, anti-malarial, and basically um, most of the Western world utilising these two things were basically able to eradicate um, the disease, and there was a lot of hope. That, so the World Health Organization thought that they would then also be able to eradicate malaria globally, but they didn't... Um, what then happened was that the mosquitoes very quickly developed resistance to DDT and the parasite very quickly developed resistance to but chloroquine. It's, it's, it's a wonderful example of a public health initiative and I'm remembering the guy whose name I can't recall right now who found the taps, uh, the water pumps in London and, yeah, he, so, yeah. and the typhoid, mm. I think it was typhoid, yeah. And uh, but but uh, what you're saying though is one of my favourite examples of uh, a false logic is cause and effect. So A happens with B, therefore A causes B. And so you went into the swamp, you had the bad smell, and you think, then you got sick. So you say, well, it's the miasma mm. or the uh, malaria. And we're going to play an aria at a moment too, by the way. <laughs> But I should say also that while we're having a lovely time here on Fuzzy Logic with Andrew Leach and uh, Harry Sutton, uh, that we are sipping on uh, gin and tonic. <laughs> and, of course, one of the flavouring in tonic is... Uh, quinine. Quinine. So quinine. And quinine was the first real effective anti-malarial. Um, but we used tonic water and quinine as an anti-malarial without actually knowing what malaria really was. People just noticed that if you drank... So quinine is an extract from a bark in Peru, um, and they noticed that if you mixed it, and Peru at the time I don't actually think had um, malaria, so it wasn't until the Europeans came over and they sort of brought it with them, I think, um, that they people worked out that this tree, if you mashed up this tree and created tonic water, uh, you would get you wouldn't get as sick and so it became a huge export from colonial Peru and spread all throughout Europe and now, do, we, do we know the mechanisms of, of why, so that's a chemical that's not a biological uh, defence against malaria, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Do we know about how that works? So against? I'm not quite sure how quinine works so, I don't, so chloroquine which is the one that they invented after which isn't used that much anymore um because it's, uh, there's been resistance to it. But, uh, again, I should know this because there's a lot of researchers at the ANU, not at John Curtin, but at the um, Research School of Biology, do a lot of work on drugs and how the drug action works against the parasite. But uh, chloroquine, basically, it shuts down a salt pump um, in malaria, and they just um, end up building excess... Um, uh, the, the parasite ends up building excess salt, I think, inside. Or in chloroquine, it's heme. They generate this byproduct from feeding off our own blood Sorry, cells. But uh, whatever the mechanism, it's toxic to the malaria. To, to but the not, parasite, but not to us. But not to the humans. Yeah. yeah. Here on Fuzzy Logic. And we are talking malaria. Uh, the rather insidious disease that blights the world. And I was looking at some statistics before the show and uh, there was actually a gradual decline in um, in the incidences of malaria uh, from 2000 to 2015 but uh, it started to rise again and in 2016 there was 216 million cases worldwide of malaria so Harry uh, Harry Sutton from the uh, John Curtin School of Medical Research and Andy Leach uh, 
are we getting on top of this problem? Where are we, <laughs> where are we going with malaria? Um, so there was definitely there was a big push in the early 2000s and this millennium to really try and eradicate malaria, and a lot of that was pushed by um, Bill and Melinda Gates. Their foundation puts in a lot of money to try and eradicate malaria, and they donate... Yeah. Um, millions of mosquito nets we've covered in insecticide and I think they put a lot of money into drug research but so and that has really brought down so I think at the beginning of the millennia around 1 million to 2 million people would die every year and that's now down to a little bit less than half a million people which is um, a big step but unfortunately a lot of people are now worried that that number will be on the rise again because of again uh, increased resistance to uh, uh, there's music playing. <laughs> um, so increased resistance to the malaria treatments, or increased resistance to the the insecticides we use. Um, both. So the um, the parasites are becoming resistant to our common drug artemisin, um, and now we need. So we're going to need to produce more um, drugs against them. But even a lot of the drugs in the pipeline, malaria already becomes resistant to that pretty quickly as well and mosquitoes are becoming resistant to a lot of the insecticides used on the nets and things and people are also worried that the nets aren't being used as much um, in places that they're needed so that's why as as an immunologist sort of tooting my trumpet is that that's why I think one of the probably the most surest way that we're going to be able to eradicate the disease is by developing uh, an effective and cost-efficient vaccine that we can actually give out to everybody and hopefully provide protection the same way that we did with smallpox. I guess the idea that the prevention is better than a cure. So we should probably talk a little bit about immunology before we get into to your research. So um, how does immunology, and it's a big broad tent, but you were talking before that you worked on B cells. So would you give us a rundown as to what B cells are and how immunology works with B cells? Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, so I guess I'll give you like a, a sort of very broad concept of what um, the immune system in general. So most people know about the immune system through basically they've gotten vaccines and they know that protects them. Um, but a lot of people don't really know much more than that. So your immune system's in general divided into two main parts. You've got the innate immune system, which is what deals with, um, it ha that acts very quickly, but it's non-specific. And so that's generally made up of a lot of these different cells and uh, biological proteins that are meant to sort of attack things as they enter the body. Fevers and inflammation is a sign of the innate immune system working. Um, a lot of cells that just eat up either dead cells or bacteria or um, viruses. Um, but then I, my focus is on the adaptive immune system, which is the, um, and that's a much more specific um, sort of uh, target, but it also takes slower to work. And how the adaptive immune system works is that you have different kinds of cells that through a process that's unique to the adaptive immune system, it doesn't happen where they, they modify their own DNA to form a unique receptor um, that can bind to um, a disease such as um, malaria or a virus or a bacteria or in cases where this system goes wrong, self, and that leads to autoimmune diseases. Um, but through this process, each individual B cell or another type of cell as a T cell can recognize a specific thing. And so a B cell that is uh, can recognize malaria, if you 
come into contact with malaria, so get bitten by an infected mosquito, this particular B cell will recognize it, and once it gets recognized, a variety of other signals are sort of needed to turn on that B cell, but once it's then turned on, ideally what should happen is it then uh, replicates itself and produces, so B cells are important for producing antibodies, so some B cells will go off and uh, turn into what we call plasma cells um, and produce a lot of this protein called antibody, which basically sticks to um, parasites and doesn't let them invade uh, the liver or um, other parts of the body. Um, and other cells will go off to um, form a memory component. And the other thing that B cells do that's different to other cells is that they will go into what we call, a, it's called a germinal center, and I like to think of it as the B-cell gym, because it's where a B-cell goes. If it knows it can recognize the parasite, but it knows it doesn't recognize the parasite very well, it goes into this uh, gym, uh, and then through these processes, it's able to, it deliberately mutates that re unique receptor, um, and through special processes, which lets it to test how well that um, receptor recognizes uh, the parasite, cells that have advantageous mutations which give it a stronger affinity to the parasite will be selected for and then they'll go off to make even more plasma cells um, and that means that once this whole process is done if ideally how it should work is in 10 years time and then you come into contact with the parasite again this whole process now happens much much quicker before you can even develop symptoms yeah so it's almost like the innate immune system is like the standing army the, ge the general army that's ready there and ready to take on kind of anything mm. and then the adaptive immune system is almost like the spies and then they give information to other parts of the immune system to go okay well we can get ready for this after i've learned so much about this um, this parasite, the spires are ready to train whatever other parts of the cell, and then the B cells are, are pretty well trained, and they have that amazing gym level there to get to get a lot stronger, and so that they're fit. The, the immune system is fit and ready to take on that parasite again. again yeah, yeah. I, and ideally that's how it should work. So that's how it works with uh, like viruses, like smallpox, for example. And a reason, the reason why vaccines work is instead of giving a person an actual virus, you just trick the B cell or the T cell into thinking that you've been infected by and the B cell will come into contact with the virus-like particle. In the case of smallpox, they just use a different virus that is similar enough. So a B cell that recognizes that virus will also recognize smallpox. Um, and then you become immune to it because now your B cells recognize it when you don't need to get sick. But unfortunately in malaria, because of the complexity of the parasite, um, there actually is no such thing as naturally acquired immunity to malaria. So smallpox before the vaccine, you would get sick, you either died or you would live. And if you lived, you wouldn't get the disease again. You would be immune to the disease. But in malaria, you will constantly be reinfected. And there's in endemic regions, people, um, gain a resistance to disease so they will still be infected with parasite but won't be sick but if you take that person out of an endemic region for a year or two and put them back in if they get infected again they'll get very sick so there's no naturally there's nothing so that's why a vaccine to malaria is much more elusive than the vaccine to smallpox because with smallpox we were just sort of tricking the immune system to doing something it does anyway but for vaccine for malaria you've actually got to try and work out What's, why isn't it working in the first place? And likely the way we're going to create a 
proper vaccine is by manipulating the immune system into doing something it wouldn't normally do. So it's a bit of a uh, an arms race, isn't it? That uh, the, uh, the the malaria has figured out how to sidestep the body's defences. Yeah. So malaria has quite a lot of different ways to. Um, so not so, so again, I focus on the immune response to that sporozoa stage before it infects the liver, because that's such a. Um, if you stop it there, the person won't get sick. But that stage and that stage is generally thought of as quite attractive because you only have around 10 to 100 sporozoites injected by any one mosquito bite. So you should be able to, unlike in the um, blood stage infection where you would have millions of billions of parasites in the blood to deal with, it's thought that this section should be pretty easy. But there isn't much uh, in terms of a natural response. By the time that the sporozoite gets the liver, even though your immune system might now be developing an immune response to that sporozoite, it doesn't matter because the sporozoite's now in your liver changing to a different stage of the life oh, it's cycle. The wrong, it's the wrong so you don't, So then those, um, then the merozoite, the blood stage cycle actually is what makes you sick. And they also know that because you get so sick and there's so much parasite in your blood, they actually found that that um, reduces your immune response to other things. So, um, you, you might have developed an immune response to that first stage of the life cycle, but, but because now, yeah. well, now you've got this blood stage that actually destroys any immune response you developed to the earlier stage. Oh, oh. Um, so, what, what's your approach? How, how are you trying to tackle this? Well, so we've been looking at so they've there's we study the sporozoite, and on the surface of the sporozoite is this protein called the circumsporozoite protein, uh, and that was discovered back in the 80s, I think, or even, uh, and um, that was the immunodominant um, protein on the surface of the sporozoite. So by immunodominant, we mean that if you, um, if somebody gets vaccinated with a sporozoite vaccine, most of the B cells that uh, respond to that um, uh, to the sporozoite respond to that protein. They're not responding to other proteins on the surface because there would be other proteins on the surface of the sporozoite, but it's that protein that most of the B cell responses aimed at. And so for a long time, this this protein is quite... Um, they never really knew the function. They think it has some function to helping the sporozoite uh, invade the liver cell. But... On, part of that protein is a long repeat region, so it's just a repeat of certain amino acids. Um, and people have thought in the past that the reason, the point of this long repeat region is almost a diversion. So the idea is you generate an immune response to this long repeat region, um, so it doesn't, um, so you're not generating an immune response to a more um, important protein on the surface of the sporozoite. So it's like a dummy. It's like a, okay, uh, we know this, um, the, the, the plasmodium has an idea that we know the immune response is going to happen and it might hit this protein, but this we don't care about. It can try and yeah. attack this protein or and, and find this protein. So I don't care. Some of the work my lab did, uh, so we were the first people to show that one of the ways that antibody specific to this protein, so the protein is this long, thin protein, and if you imagine an antibody, so an antibody is this Y-shaped protein which will bind, both ends of the Y will bind to the, the long repeat. Um, but what we found was that actually to develop a really strong affinity to this protein, six antibodies bind to this one protein, this one stretch of protein. Um, and then a lot of, uh, after we found this, a few other labs have now found similar um, results. And so 
um, what this sort of means is is that what I think is sort of happening is that the this particular section of the protein is almost acting like an antibody sponge that it just can soak up, and the parasite generates a lot of this protein. They shed off the CSB, so it almost seems like it's just trying to soak up as much antibody to other sections of it which are not as important. And then it still um, gets to the liver and and changes anyway. Um, And so because um, even if you can vaccinate with the sporozoite and doesn't lead to blood stage, any immune response to that sporozoite only lasts around a year or two and then wanes very quickly. So we've got at the moment there's a vaccine that's based off this circumsporozoite protein with the repeat region called uh, RTSS and it's been licensed and it's now going through very big um, trials in Africa. But it it has only really an efficiency rate of 30 to 40%, I think. So, um, which still, if you know, there's 200 million people being infected every year, that's 100 million so people. So, what, what sort of success are you having? I know you probably don't want to say too much because researchers typically need to go through the review process and so on, but uh, you, you're feeling like this is going to be a fruitful path? Um, it's too early to tell, I think. We've got, I think we have ideas of, um, so as, as because a lot of people have just been trying to, the vaccine work into this is just change the protein around and do lots of like, you know, eventually we'll get one that works. And I guess our lab sort of is taking a, you know, take a back step and try and look at why isn't it working first. And so we're trying to understand what the immune response to this um, vaccine what, what is it and why isn't it as good as an immune response to, say, um, smallpox? Okay, well, we, we might uh, break to another track while we pour ourselves because we're running out of gin and tonics here on Fuzzy Logic Talking Malaria with our researcher from the John Curtin School of Medical Research with Andy Leach on uh, Fuzzy Logic. And uh, now the malaria parasite is a nasty, very wily opponent and... Uh, You've, somehow you've got to get this thing into the lab and you've got, you're poking around all its proteins, the surface of its, uh, uh, of the cell, and how do you, how can you do that? So where I'm lucky in Canberra, my supervisor Ian Coburn started um, up when he joined around three or four years ago, five years ago maybe, um, an insectary which uh, has the uh, mosquito that can carry the Nuffleys mosquito that can carry the parasite and we also have a strain of we work on um, mouse malaria so there's never really any worry that we're going to get anything. No way. Um, okay, so we're not walking around with hazmat suits nah. and special <laughs> so pressurised I, I don't have to worry if I get a mosquito bite, I'm not going to get too sick. Um, but it's one of only three or four in the country um, now so it's quite, uh, it's, I think it's quite special for Canberra to have that sort of research facility um, here, but it allows us to do because we can work directly with the sporozoites um, in the mosquito stage of um, or that first stage of the infection. Um, it allows us to do research that a lot of other researchers can't do. So, and the mouse malaria is different enough from the human malaria, but yet useful that gives you meaningful so, results. Yeah. So we we work on so we modified our mouse malaria so that it's it expresses a human CSP, it's a Fasciparum CSP molecule. Mm-hmm. So antibodies, for example, that are generated against this particular um, uh, molecule will then actually um, protect against um, human uh, 
human parasite. But of course, uh, with all research on uh, animals, that you never know how well it will translate. So I um, presume at some stage, perhaps not in Australia, maybe at an overseas lab where there is the real human malaria. Well, so we we have collaborators uh, in the U.S. Um, in Washington D.C. who have uh, they work on. Um, malaria vaccines and so we're working with them on getting samples from their human um, human trials um, and sort of relating them back to uh, what we see in our mouse data and at the moment it looks quite promising a lot of the the human stuff that they generate is quite similar to some of the data that we see in our mouse models um, which I guess is always nice to, to see like <laughs> it means that you, you make you coming up with the right ideas. Well, the ultimate goal of your research is to find a an effective defence, right? Mm. So, what, what would that translate to in when when it gets to the public health domain to to a delivery system? What might that look like? Well, ideally, it would it would likely be um, some kind of vaccine. Uh, what sort of form the vaccine would be in? I don't know. We we do a lot of work. Um, so people get booster vaccines a lot of the time. So people, you know, get a vaccine and then you'll get another one um, how many years later to try and boost up that response and sort of make that memory response stronger. We've been trialling a lot of different types of... So what, what we've found is that if you boost with a certain kind of parasite or a certain kind of protein uh, or immunise initially with a certain kind of protein and then boost with a separate one, you can get a more efficient immune response than just... Um, using one protein or one parasite the whole way through. Um, so it could likely be that the regimen of vaccines might be different. Um, but it's also likely, so we work on this sporozoite stage, um, it's also likely that any sort of effective vaccine against malaria will have to um, also target the red, um, the blood cell um, stage where there's lots of um, different parasites infecting your blood because all it takes is one sporozoite to get through and infect the liver before you um, kill it. And then if you break out an infection, then you're not protected anymore. So it's likely that you're going to have to have two, a vaccine against two different stages of the life cycle. Actually. And I'm guessing that it's going to be a few years before we see, it, it could be 10 or 20 years, maybe. Probably. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe I'll have a brilliant idea next week <laughs> but um, what what will probably come out much sooner that our um, collaborators do is so again what I've been we've been studying what kind of antibodies are generated from the sort of immune uh, from vaccinating with sporozoites so we sequence the um, the receptors of those B cells those unique receptors and see how they bind to um, CSP and so a lot of people do that kind of work and you generate, it's likely what will happen is instead of having to take your doxycycline or your um, your drugs when you go over traveling, you can get an injection of antibodies that are specific to malaria um, that will protect you for probably around six months. Um, and then, so that's useful for travelers and like the military. I think they're not quite for people who are living there. So I mean, yeah, because for, yeah. if you actually wanted to eradicate um, the disease that would mean you'd have to be 
um, well, there's injecting two billion people every year. With and every there's two multiple years. threads to this, as you've already told us about the history here to Europe and the, and the public health initiatives with cleaning up water, mm. uh, controlling the uh, mosquito population. And in Australia, we've got this uh, bacteria, the Wolbachia bacteria, that uh, infects the mosquitoes themselves and apparently makes it, uh, it removes them as a vector. So there's all sorts of strands to this. Yeah, I mean, people have been working on the interesting thing, like the CRISPR gene drive sort of technology, where they've um, modified mosquitoes to not be able to carry the parasite. And what's special about that is, sure, you can um, design a mosquito that not cannot carry the parasite, but it then has to pass on that gene throughout the population. But they've developed this um, technique that basically forces, so you have two copies of every gene. This particular technique, if you give it to a mosquito, that mosquito might pass on one of its genes, one of this copy of this gene to its offspring, but then this gene is driven to create it, uh, duplicate itself in the other copy of the DNA. So you can basically force an entire wild population of mosquitoes to um, carry two copies of this gene to not be able to... Well, is it, isn't it a wonderful uh, moment to celebrate the uh, the successes of, of science? Uh, we have a long way to go with malaria, but yeah. it shows you all the number of really clever people, really innovative and creative ways of, of attacking what is a, a real scourge for humanity going back many thousands of years. And, and I think the history of uh, malaria goes back to like 50,000 or something. Malaria would have been with us forever, I think. It's been with us in our primates. It's particularly become a problem. So Thalsopyrum, which is the one that kills most people, came up around 10,000 years ago. And I think that's because when we started settling down and farming, it kills much quickly, much more quickly, and so you need is a much larger population, population of people, density, yeah. otherwise it would wipe itself out. So it looks like to deal with malaria and around the world, it's going to be multi, multi-angles multi where you attack it from. So we'll be doing infrastructure things to clean up water and, have, mm. and clean up that so there's not as many vectors. We'll be looking at ways to treat the mosquito populations with either chemicals or trying to eradicate them by changing the way they hold the mosquito or the way they breed. And then we'll also be looking at immunizations around the, around the world as well. So all those three things coming together might yeah, do in the future. Um, so there's, uh, well, there's another lab at John Curtin who does, uh, they do the host-directed response to malaria, and it comes back to this thing. So in terms of how old is malaria, or how long has it been with us, it must have been with us for hundreds of thousands of years because in some populations we've developed genetic resistance to it. Oh, there's a sickle so, cell anemia, isn't there? So sickle cell anemia is an example where if you carry one copy of the gene, you're resistant. You're more resistant to malaria, so you don't get as sick. Um, but if you carry, unluckily, if you carry two copies, you then sickle cell anemic, and that's almost worse than that sickle cell anemic has, has, has its own hair. So, but that normally that gene wouldn't um, be selected for in normal population. But obviously, the pressure of malaria on the human population in Africa was so great that it was it's evolutionarily it's better to have this defective gene, um, which in fact provides resistance for most people. And that kind of tells you just what a wily opponent yeah, is, because the human population has many thousands of years uh, to adapt to it, and it still hasn't really, uh, humans haven't really found a, a natural biological response. We, we uh, should really good one. say that selected for is just an evolutionary term for being useful to us. So this 
sickle cell anemia gene is not useful in any other circumstance, but we have this horrible parasite that affects us so bad that it may as well keep this gene around. It might mean that some of our young does get this horrible disease, but it means that the majority of us might get away with one copy of the gene and can survive and have a resistance to, to this. That's how much of an amazing foe malaria is. It's a driver for our evolution. That might not be the best step, but it's getting us... Well, it's, uh, it's a great thing to, to hear your story, Harry. And Thank you. Uh, we really wish you the, the best and the, the greatest success because it's, uh, well, uh, no, I'm a bit flower if I say the humanity hangs on your. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we all make, you know, I'll be getting a little uh, flowery there, but it's all these individual people who just each chipping away at their own the collective effort of thousands of people you're collaborating with with colleagues in the USA and around Australia and other countries so it, it's a, it's a really important thing and uh, I think with that so we might just uh, finish off with a quick heads up with what's in the Canberra Times today because we have our Ask a Fuzzy column that appears each week and uh, as promised, I mentioned a couple of weeks on, ago on air that uh, I had to read a question about what is uh, animals left and right-handed. And so I did a fair bit of research into, into that. Uh, interesting, you get mist, mixed results depending on where you look. <laughs> so I have to be very careful that I never go to one source to, uh, to get an answer to something like this. But it seems that dogs are roughly 50-50 left or right pawed but an individual animal will be left all right. Uh, cats are similar, and uh, primates, uh, so bonobos and uh, chimpanzees and so on, the great apes are, tend to be right-handed, but orangutans were left-handed. Uh, kangaroos were left-pawed. South-paws. <laughs> left-pawed, left yeah, uh, because they, they would uh, prop themselves up on their right shoulder or on their right elbow or whatever it is and then feed with their left yeah. uh, or the apes would, would grasp a, an object with their left hand and then manipulate it with their right hand but here's a curious one, snails have you ever looked at garden snails and they almost always coil to the right mm. almost <laughs> always and if you're a left leaning snail you're going to have a sad sad love life because you ain't going to go very far with a right coiled <laughs> snail if you're a left yeah. And yep. in the UK, they had a social media campaign with a hashtag of something love, and they managed to find three snails that crawled to the left, and they Got tried to, and they bred for them. <laughs> and guess what? They were all right coiled. The yeah, kids are all right coiled. That's great. They're all right coiled. So, there you go. Well, that's a lot for today. Thank you for your time, Harry. Great to see you, and I look forward. Maybe you'll come back and give us a, an update on your research. Hopefully. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear of your successes, and thanks for your company today, Andrew. Thank you, Rod. Good on you. I'll catch you later. <laughs>